This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we've got a special guest this week. Who is it? It's Sophie. Hey, Sophie. I always do that to our guests. I don't tell them that I want them to introduce themselves. You're just like, who are you? <laughs> but I don't ask them directly. I kind of ask everyone. You're, and <laughs> you're just asking Somebody the internet. Who, who can it yeah. be now? So, so, who could it be? I can't imagine. Oh, wait. Wait. You're talking to me. It's me. Hello. It's me. It's Sophie. Hello. I'm Elder Cunningham. No, that's Andrew. <laughs> Hello. Uh, Sophie, what's up? What are books for you? you we, we talk about books every week on this show, and so we brought you on to talk about Speedboat, right? Yes. By Renata, Renata, Renata Adler. Adler. Renata Adler. Renata Adler. Renata Adler. Yes. Okay. Uh, so... For me, books are everything. Books are super Im- okay. B- books are super important. Um, I didn't learn to read until I was in first grade, which is apparently something that parents get alarmed about now, um, but huh. was normal for 1981. Um, okay. And but once I was able to read, um, I basically was like, "I got this, everyone." <laughs> Hi, librarian. Uh, I will take all of these. And then she was like, okay. And uh, and then eventually I became a librarian. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so and so you're good you're best good friends with our good friend Margaret Wilson. Yes. Who Margaret H. Wilson, excuse me. I need to be Margaret on H. brand. Wilson. You, yeah. You gotta uh, clarify yes. it. Who even when she's not here, <laughs> she, can hear she this knows. Right mm-hmm. <laughs> and she co hosts uh Appointment Television with Andrew, which is a great podcast. And then you guys run a newsletter, right? Can you talk about that? Quickly. Sure. We run a newsletter called Two Bossy Dames, where we mm-hmm. collect and comment on all the culture that is there to be had on the internet. <laughs> and sometimes we do that at great length. Frequently, we do that with uh, a lot of emphasis and uh, exclamation points and, oh, and nice. bold font. <laughs> and... Uh, and- <laughs> There's, a, always, lo- there's always a lot of gifts. gifts, a whole lot of gifts. Um, I, I studied at Margaret's internet knee and um, <laughs> have have learned the ways. So that's a thing that we can talk about sh- as well. Um, I actually thought yeah. this book uh, might benefit from some gifts. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's we write Two Bossy Dames. It's a newsletter. It's also a community on the internet. And um, yeah, it seems it's a, it's a pretty welcoming happening internet place. Yeah, it's really lively and fun. And yeah, we like to keep it welcoming. So dive right in, people. You can subscribe at tinyletter.com slash two bossy dames. It's like a better version nice. of the internet. Yeah, yes. For you. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, Andrew, do you remember where this book was on 
our list for a while now, but I don't necessarily remember where the recommendation came from. And I had not heard of it. Had you? Um, no, I don't remember where it came from. I like all of our book recommendations that don't come from Patreon people. Like we do have this big Google Doc that we just are continuously dumping stuff into. Um, but yeah, I don't remember the particular person who sent this one in because it's it's been a while. I think. yes, yeah, this one is like towards the top of the list, which means who knows. Who knows who sent it? Yeah, it's like this and the Kite Runner and a couple other things have been on there forever, and we'll get to them eventually. Yeah, we got a we got a couple recent requests for Kite Runner, which is probably moving it up mm-hmm. the ladder. But you picked this one out, Sophie. Had you heard of it before? Had you heard of Renata Adler before? I had not heard of this particular book, but I had definitely heard of Renata Adler. Um, she kind of exploded back into internet consciousness after being okay. a recluse. For quite a while. Huh. Um, this is her first novel, but I don't think it's her first book. She was a, she was, I think, a staff reporter for The New Yorker. And then she was a film critic for The New yes. York Times. For like a year, I think. Yeah. I think 14 months, exactly. Huh. And okay. she's. And then she went back to The New Yorker and hung out for like another yeah. 40 years. <laughs> but like, had kind of, she was one of those people who, um, one of those writers who people would mention in the same breath as Joan Didion, but I think, oh, okay. but I think Joan Didion has been in people's minds and in the conversation generally, like about culture and literature and and society and things like yeah. that, for a much more consistent long time. Like, the- I, yeah, I wonder. I I don't know Didion well enough to know. Like, is she right? Is she maybe writing about things that are a little more universal? Because from what I can tell about Adler, uh, her focus is, is, at least in these two novels, one of which we'll talk about today, uh, seems a little more specific to her like the, her experience in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Joan Didion is famous for writing very personal essays that um, strike a chord with lots and lots of readers. Um, okay. And I think her most, her two most recent books have been about extremely personal things. Like, um, the year of magical thinking is about, yeah, that's the one I've heard yeah, of. Yeah. So, so I think mm-hmm. she became very famous with books like slouching towards Bethlehem, um, and other essay collections, but then, um, most notably goodbye to all that, which is about leaving New York for California. Mm. Um, Okay. So she wrote the the original yes. "Why I'm Leaving New York" exactly. Tumblr post. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, Great. Before it had become an insufferable right. exactly. cliche. <laughs> and um, and then the year of magical thinking. I'm trying to remember. Is that the one about both her husband and her daughter dying, or is the daughter okay at the end of that one, and then she dies later? I'm terrible for not remembering that uh, immediately just the husband just the okay, husband passing right. so her her husband was also um a very famous literary person and they had one child a daughter and he died i think of cancer and then her daughter died of like the flu yeah i want to say it was t- like pneumo- pneumonia pneumonia. It was- pneumonia yeah 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 it was just terrible um but she has really lived her writing life in public consistently over many, 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 many years. And it seemed like Renata Adler had been this like blazing presence in the Mm seventies and into the early eighties. And then just sort of decided she wasn't going to do that anymore. 
Now, I I don't know. When you say blazing presence, like I don't read the New Yorker, so I don't know. Is that because were her books also as widely regarded as it seems like her collection of essays and reporting have been, like in their time? Well, I don't. I mean, I I think they were both well reviewed, but um, one of the things about both of these books is that they were out of print for a while. I'm not sure for, for how a long, long time, but um. It was only, yeah, it was only in 2013 that they were both republished. Yeah. yeah. And so they were kind of, they were kind of out of the, out of the public eye. And yeah, if you look at her bibliography, um, I don't think this includes all of her articles and things, but you know, they're like you guys have been talking about, there's stuff, there's a lot of stuff in the seventies and the early eighties. And then like most of the eighties and the nineties are sort of a gap. Mm. And then there's there's more activity like going into the into the 2000s again. But uh, yeah, for a while there, I don't think she was as active and I don't think she's published a novel since Pitch Dark, which was her second one, which is out in 1983. And then Speedboat was in 1976. And that won that Hemingway like debut fiction award, which has come up a couple times on this show. Um, So it's worth noting. But yeah, she seems very much or at least. I don't know. She seems very of her time. Yes. In in the 70s and 80s, but also very critical of that time. And that might factor into this novel. It sounds yeah. Like and well. and she's interesting. Um, I, she occupies an interesting space generationally as well, because um, she was born in the late 30s and um, and her parents fled the Nazis. And um, she was born in Italy. Right? Yes. Like they had fled yeah. from Germany to Italy and then they moved to Connecticut. You know, it's all the same thing. Right. All very similar. <laughs> very, very similar. Um, yeah. So she grew up, I think, mostly in Connecticut. And um, right. But she was born in the in the late 30s. And that generation is very, very small. Um, mm. And especially as compared with uh, the baby boomers to whom they gave birth. And that's a good point. Um, yeah, okay. They were way too young to fight in the second world war they were all little kids um and or teenagers in her case she was a little kid um and then they were so they were born in the late 30s she would have finished college like in the middle of vietnam yeah, uh sure so uh, uh no, or no been, bef- sorry before no, she would have been ready to Re- go yes yes yeah. she was she would have been already writing and right stuff right. That so, point, right so so one of the things that I think really looms over this novel is like the aftermath of Vietnam, uh, the aftermath of Watergate. Like Richard Nixon is only mentioned by name on a couple of pages in this book, sort of towards the end. But I really felt his presence just hanging over the whole thing. Huh. Okay. So um, I just... I also just found that she wrote um, a well-regarded piece in 1965. She wrote a letter from Selma yes. um, about that march. So that's she was already working for the New Yorker and and kind of taking part in cultural and political criticism and journalism at that point. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting that you guys talk about her like occupying an interesting place generationally because there have been a lot of pieces about her that also 
call her like a proto internet. Yes, sure. oh, totally. <laughs> kind of. There's a there's an article in the Atlantic that I read called uh, Renata Adler yes. Troller Treasure, <laughs> which I just I so want the Atlantic to write an article yeah. about me. That's like yeah, this. that's going on your on your tombstone is what that is. Andrew Cunningham yeah. Troller Treasure. <laughs> And the piece, the piece says, are you feeling it? The whirling duality of Renata Adler lamenting a decline in standards, falling away from the great days. She goes off in her beautiful prose like a barbarian blogger. <laughs> like, how come nobody around here has any <laughs> manners? Yeah. Was that was was that from her uh, 1999 book, Andrew? That was not her oh. prose. That was from oh, an okay. article about her. <laughs> but um, yeah, it talks about it talks about the 1999 book, which is called um, "Gone: The Last Days of the New Yorker," and then there's another piece that sort of serves as a precursor to that, which is uh, she wrote in 1980 this 8,000 word scathing criticism of her New Yorker colleague Pauline yes, Kale. Pauline uh-huh. Is that how you mm-hmm. pronounce her last name? Yes, Kale had this collection called "When the Lights Go Down." And uh, Adler published a gigantic, super negative. Sophie, review, you and I were and... talking about this. I love that it's called "The Perils of Pauline." Yep. <laughs> so, what's great about this is that it's basically two really flinty, vinegary, incredibly brilliant, pissy ladies um, uh-huh. who are just very, very important cultural critics of their time. Yes. Pauline Kale never pulled a punch in her life. And Yes, she yeah, as a as a mo- as a film yes, critic. Yes, as a right? film critic. Um legendary film critic for the New Yorker. Um and uh Adler basically was just like, well, guess what everybody? I'm going to write the first hatchet job of a colleague like who's still working. Here you go. You're welcome. Like I think I think she is both a troll and a treasure. Like it's it's totally a both and it's not an either or. Right. Right. And it's like reading this stuff about her. It made me like, did she start like New York media being the awful insular way that it is where all any of them want to talk about is what else is happening in New York media? Like, is that (laughs) no, I'm sure she didn't start it. But like, man, this is like this is so of that. I, I would love to to see her be like the lead troll in a particular website's comment section that would be amazing like i want her to lead the charge because some of the stuff that she said i have a couple quotes i just want to read real quick because they're amazing um this is her writing about kale because what is most striking is that she has over the years lost any notion of the legitimate borders of polemic Mistaking lack of civility for vitality, she now substitutes for argument a protracted obsessional invective. But pot, meat, kettle. Yeah, <laughs> You're a little both bit, black. right? What? <laughs> a little bit. Uh, and then the the one that's that's like the the almost the thesis of the article. Now, when now when the lights go down, a collection of her reviews over the past five years is out, and it is, to my surprise, and without kale or Simon-like exaggeration, not simply, jarringly, piece by piece, line by line, and without interruption, worthless. Oh, snap. <laughs> yeah. Wow. How's it going, my friend? That was way Your harsh work time. is garbage. <laughs> yeah, like, how does, how does that... How does your morning meeting happen after oh that 
article God. drops. Can like, you imagine being the managing editor who had to handle those two personalities? Ugh. Oh, God, kill me now. Oh, man. No, I mean, thank I cannot you. imagine. I cannot imagine somebody doing that to somebody else at the same publication and like not getting fired. Like, I'm sure that in part because of this, there are probably rules <laughs> about writing stuff about the place that you work. Yeah, because for another the review place. was <laughs> in the New York Times review of books. I think it wasn't. At least the New Yorker did not run its own hatchet job wait hold on was it in the new york times book review or was it in the new york review of books oh because those uh, are um, um it was in the it was in uh, the new york fascinatingly review of books. that is exactly who brought speedboat back into print ah, <laughs> i love their books by the way they they i think they do a wonderful job with especially with uh the children's and YA titles that they've brought back in. Yeah, print. you've recommended that that to us in the past. Yeah, I love. Um, I yeah, I'm a big fan. And and I think uh, it's great so that they. This has been this has been our review of the New York <laughs> Review of Books. Zero paid advertising. You're welcome, guys. <laughs> let's uh, let's dive into this into this thing. Yeah, we're we're talking about Speedboat. So what the heck is this novel? We've talked about who this lady is and where she's coming from. What you said it was written in seventy, published in seventy six, yeah, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So I think that it's fair to say that this is not a plot driven novel. Okay, uh, it's definitely a voice driven novel, and the voice I love the voice. Um, it is definitely. Can you draw? Can you draw that distinction? Sure. That, that seems like that's a distinction that you are prepared to make, and I know exactly what you mean. But I would not have phrased it. Sure, that way, I, so. I would be happy to. Uh, a plot-driven novel is a novel where the story is what keeps you turning the pages. So, like, sure, sure. I think probably the most popular example of that of the last five years would be Gone Girl, where you just sure, cannot sure. wait to okay. find out sure. what happened next. And the characters are really well drawn. And that's definitely a part of it. You're curious about their motivations. But um, what happens next is the, the yeah, that's going to be the important. generally the motivation for the reader to keep to keep going with it. Right. And then. And then if you haven't read it and you go into it and you know what the big twist is, like it does remove something from the from the book. I, think. Um, I mean, it doesn't it's not like it makes yeah, it totally yeah. valueless. But I think if you know the thing that's coming like right in the middle of Gone yes. Girl, it, it's not it it's is not it's not yes, as page. Although yeah. I I didn't read the book and I knew the twist and I watched the movie and I loved it anyway. Like some sometimes mm. I want to know what the big plot thing is before I read a book or watch TV or a movie because I don't want to focus on that. I don't want to focus on what's going to happen next. I really want to focus on watching the performances or... Or how it's being Yeah, structured. I'm more interested in yeah, the process that's interesting. and the structure mm-hmm. sometimes. Sure. So, um, yeah, so for readers who really, really want something to happen in a novel, this is not going to be... Uh, their teacup um but um for readers who are interested in a very strong distinctive voice and a book where the where the structure is really kind Mm. of what it's all about i think this would be a satisfying read so um the protagonist and narrator is jen fain and she's a writer uh, she's a journalist 
it's I think heavily autobiographical. Um, <laughs> okay, so, uh, uh, stop okay. me if you've heard yes, this one. Yes, the, she's a writer and a journalist. Write, write, right, exactly. write what you know and is the, the rule. Write what you know. So she's yeah, she's a she's a journalist. She's not super great at her job. Um, okay, and the <laughs> how do we know that? She says it. She talks about being the kind of reporter who doesn't ask really great questions and just kind of tags along. And um, she has this anecdote about a time that she interviewed an actor backstage after one of his performances. And her entire strategy for the interview was just to sort of get him talking and offer an anecdote. And then at the end of the anecdote, repeat like the last five words of whatever it was that he said with an upward inflection. So as to get him to maybe talk a little bit more. And uh, and amazingly, this strategy works. I can't imagine that she had an incredible story, but you know, lots of people who do celebrity profiles do do write arounds. So I guess this is her explaining the way a write around works. So definitely, some things happen, but mm-hmm. it is very episodic, and n- the narrative is not direct. It's more like. The natural, like the natural path of a river, where it will like double back on itself. So you wind up hmm. revisiting characters and events that she's introduced, you know, twenty five and thirty pages ago, and maybe you thought that it was that that character or in incident were just going to remain there, sort of in the dust of the narrative, and then they come up again, and you're like, oh, Jim, Jim, right, okay, Jim, and it turns out. You know, Jim is her boyfriend. And um, but you don't know that when she first introduces him. And so she she tells a lot of stories about her experiences attending this very radically progressive boarding school. That sounds wacky. Um, (laughs) Okay, they have to sleep on these sleeping porches in the cold weather. They do. There's a lot of horseback riding. Um, it sounds vaguely socialist. Um, do they give you like pictures of animals instead of letter grades? Is that the kind of place um, we're talking about? She doesn't specify that, but yes. Like there's a dance, there's a dance class where part of like one of the classes you're supposed to be completely relaxed and lie on the floor and just really relax your body and the dance instructor comes around and like lifts up the feet of these tiny little pupils and you know she'll lift up and maybe the pupil will assist her with lifting the foot because you know that's how they feel that it's correct to behave and she'll say you're not relaxed (laughs) you're not relaxed relax better please (laughs) yeah yeah so so she attends this very strange school. Um, she winds up attending a women's college, which is definitely Bryn Mawr College, that, which both she and I graduated from. Oh, that's right. Um, I didn't realize you had gone to Bryn Mawr. Yeah, yeah. Whoop, whoop. So, like, there's woohoo, owls. She, um, she talks about a, a field trip, which is a, a field trip that all students who take historical geology go on. And it sounds exactly the same as the field trip I went on. <laughs> <laughs> 30 40 years later um and uh she also talks about uh how you know although the college 
taught classes on, you know, all sorts of things, communications and media and stuff like that. They really reserved most of their energy for like the medievalists and uh, the archaeologists. And that was absolutely true for the Mm -hmm. time that I attended. Um, So I was like, oh, it's nice to see that continuity. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And there's a ton of anecdotes of life in this really, really narrow segment of society. So it's all about her life in this very intellectual, upper-middle-class milieu, uh, the weird vacations that they go on where they go to these fabulous locations, but they have a very squalid experience because they're extremely well-educated but they're also kind of radical and none of them has any money because they all work in media in New York. <laughs> okay. Okay. Huh. Um, Stop me if you heard this one. Huh. Right, right. This should all sound super familiar. Um, <laughs> and I will say, like, the the sentence-level writing is gorgeous. Like, okay. it's just... She has this really impressive command of English like her just her language is very beautiful and very precise and she does a beautiful job of painting a picture even if she's only going to spend 75 words Hmm. on a particular anecdote about you know a dinner that she goes to you can see the restaurant you can see the people at the table you get a really strong feeling for what it was like. So mm-hmm. although it is in some ways very confounding as a reader, especially now, like I feel like we're in a really strong moment for excellent plot driven stories. Yeah. Yeah. To have one that just resists all of that so strongly is very bracing. So um, is it organized chronologically? Is she hopping around? What? Where do these anecdotes from this particular college experience come from? Well, there's one that's sort of in the first quarter of the book, and there's another one that's in the last third. Oh, okay. So she she really does double back yeah. on herself many times throughout the book, and there's mm-hmm. definitely. There's a bunch of times where she talks about um, where Jen is talking about experiences that are clearly Renata's experiences um, in terms of like what she's writing about. She talks about um, being at a a conference that's all about like uh, social protest and um, you know the the conference has all these really great intentions of being uh, super diverse and you know really moving the conversation forward and it all sort of kind of turns into like middle class white people talking about like the confronting their own internalized racism um again stop us if right. you heard this one no before. exactly I, yeah. I, was, <laughs> I i before i hopped on this call with you guys i was talking to my dad and um I was telling him about this book and the themes and he said exactly what you said. He was like, oh my God, like literally nothing has changed since you were born. <laughs> he says, we think it has, but nope, not at all. Yeah, it's still mostly the same. Yeah, he told me this story um, um, about how in the, like right around the time that this book was published, uh, the late 70s, um, or I guess that this actually would have been the mid 70s because Gerald Ford was president. Um he said New York was on the verge of bankruptcy. Like the city was about to go under and 
Gerald Ford visited New York and was like, sorry, guys, we're not going to help you. And the New York Post ran an enormous screaming headline reading, Ford to New York, drop dead. Drop dead. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> and, that's a famous article. Yes, And I didn't realize that that's the origin of that structure of a headline. Yeah. Huh. But yeah. like reading this book, like every five pages, I thought to myself, my God, she invented the slate pitch. Can you, can you, uh, can you like, illuminate on that a little bit? Sure, sure. So there's an internet website called Slate.com. Yeah. And mm. it's, it's, yep. <laughs> it is uh, an online magazine, and it's been around for a long time, and it's one of those sites that maybe you've read something from Slate and you're not even aware of it, um, because they publish just a massive amount of content every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of it is designed to be highly shareable or what the kids call clickbait. And, um, and it kind of was that way even before, y- you know, stuff like the word clickbait became yes. like common. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's a type of article that you can now find at like, at like Vulture and the Atlantic and like all kinds of places. It's, it's kind of everywhere. But like the yeah, the basic DNA of this story idea is very slate-y. And it's like the core of it is like why that thing you believe is wrong. Yes. And then optionally you can say why that thing you believe is wrong, but not for the reasons that you think. Right. Right. It's it's like a couple different levels. We're gonna of, we're of gonna slate stake out pitch. several contrarian positions and you can enjoy this delicious buffet. Mm-hmm. Of and, and that's the opinions. yeah that is certainly the bulk of their content i think ever you know they will churn out and hire good writers that will not adhere to that formula on a regular basis but they also know that that formula is what will draw them the most traffic so yeah i mean it's not exclusively what they do but it's so reliably what fair. they do that that yeah yes. slate pitch has become a, a recognized phrase from people who follow this sort of thing yes. okay. and and they are i mean they're aware of that oh yeah sure. like they i oh, listen to oh, a bunch yeah. of slate oh, podcasts yeah. they talk about it all the time <laughs> so you know they laugh at themselves but they're gonna keep publishing it because it works uh-huh of course um so yeah this book is part of what's remarkable about it is that it sets out so much of what we think of as internet discourse culture. How so? In 1976. So first of all, the contrarian opinions sort of it's filled with devastating retorts. Okay. So there's a lot of there's a lot of conversations where that she chronicles and sort of the point of her chronicling the conversation is to set up this devastating punchline. Who are these conversations usually between, like, other writers or... mm, No. Well, sometimes. Sometimes she'll set up an anecdote about one of her colleagues, like Mm -hmm. um, the gossip columnist. And, like, you're led by the nose through these couple of paragraphs to believe that this person is a terrible person. And then at the end, she's like, I rather liked him. You know, like... (laughs) She relays this story about having gone to uh the morgue of her paper which is um i'm gonna probably get this wrong but i think the morgue is where they keep all the the files about 
everything like all the people that they've written about all the subjects Mm. that they've written about and they um they have those ready to go for when they need to write an obituary or if they need to have like background research for a new piece um so she talks about having gone to the morgue to check out a file and having signed it out with the morgue file clerk and having taken it home and left it there for several days, which is against the rules. And she knew that. Um, and she finally brings it back. And the guy just like lays into her about this. Well, you know, what if the person had died and we needed to write the obituary? And she says very reasonably, well, I had signed it out. Like you knew who had it and you would have told me, hey, we need that file and I would have brought it back. And the, so the file, they have a, a number of exchanges along those lines where the file clerk is getting increasingly irate with her. And you'd think that what she would say is, you know, God, I hated that file clerk. But actually she ends this section, which is no more than five paragraphs. Um, you know, I always liked those really obnoxious, crabby file clerks. Like, the end. And then she moves on to something else. There's there's no... <sighs> there's no plot. Like, it's, it's meandering and elliptical and episodic. And then it's over. Um, huh. But you... But it's definitely, definitely intentional. Oh, yes. Like, unapologetically Absolutely. It is, it is in your yeah. face. If you don't like it, she does not care. She couldn't... <laughs> there, there are... yeah she does not care at all um she started to write interestingly she wanted to write a thriller huh yeah because she she said she really liked kind of plot driven thrillery books right oh yeah she wanted to write a really awesome suspense novel which makes perfect sense for the 70s like i think the Mm seven i think of the 70s as like the, the really one of the greatest moments for suspense and paranoia in sure. realistic fiction I can't imagine um, why right. there was i mean there was a lot of like horror literature yeah. there was a lot of like genre stuff lots that, was, that was stuff getting a little more mainstream yeah. lots of sci-fi stuff like writing the back of star trek yeah totally definitely. um and she just couldn't do it which is amazing i i think i actually give her a lot of credit for saying like i wanted to do this one thing and i just could not figure out how to do it and so she decided well i'm gonna do the opposite of that huh kind of and like that and it's like a bunch of really short reportings on this woman's life effectively mm-hmm. yes uh she and then she winds up working for a congressional house oversight committee and her boyfriend is a sort of like the josh lyman or maybe the toby ziegler of an unnamed <laughs> candidate's political campaign and i'm sure had i been an actual adult in the 1970s i would be able to tell you who oh, that sure. was like there's there's a lot of blind itemy stuff sure in here. yeah um there's there's one scene where there's a, a dinner that she's at and one of the people there is supposed to be klaus von bulow do you guys know who klaus von bulow is though i have <laughs> okay, no so, earthly clue uh in the very early 80s klaus von bulow um was arrested for and convicted of the attempted murder of his wife, Sonny Von Bulow, who I've heard was, of that name before. Okay. Yes. So she was this fantastically wealthy socialite and they were unhappily married and he may or may not have uh, attempted to kill her. And instead she went into a diabetic coma and 
Um, I think oh she may still be in that coma. If she hasn't died, she's definitely still comatose. And uh, so he was convicted of her attempted murder. Um, and he hired Alan Dershowitz to defend him. And and the conviction was overturned. And there's actually a great movie about that called Reversal of Fortune, starring hmm. Jeremy Irons. I believe he won an Oscar Ooh, for his Jeremy's portrayal. Uncle yes. Scar, let's do it. Yeah, you definitely should watch this movie. It's Ooh. so good. Glenn Close plays Sonny. <laughs> um, Christine Baranski plays Jeremy Irons' new girlfriend. Okay. Um, in a fantastic role. And Alan Dershowitz is played by... Uh, Ron Silver, the guy who played Bruno Gianelli on The West Wing. Okay. Okay. All right. And oh, he he passed away pretty recently yes, too, right? Yes. Um, and right. Sonny Von Bulow passed away in 2008. Okay. But uh, she was in that coma yes. until she passed yeah. away. So the movie Klaus Von Bulow is still around. Yeah. So he by by ha- in experiencing this reversal of fortune, um, he was he's a- been able to live out the rest of his life, you know, with a lot of money um and leisure um so anyway there's a scene in the book where you're supposed to understand that one of the people at the dinner is klaus von bulow but he isn't named by name okay okay Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of like blind items stuff like that where readers reading the book at the same time that the around the time when the book was published a lot of them would have known who she was talking about or would have known who she was drawing inspiration from. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of that is not visible to a contemporary reader um, unless they are, you know, of a similar generation to her. You yeah. Know, well, even now it sounds like if you didn't go and do a bunch of research on Adler about like, you know, her going to Bryn Mawr and and her job and all that stuff, like there would be some context that maybe you'd be missing out on like you wouldn't necessarily know all the stuff that Adler was commenting on where she was really saying oh this is what I deal with in real life this isn't fiction right right except it is like it's (laughs) it's fictionalized it's right yeah that's 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 what I meant let's say Um, (laughs) it's, it's heavily autobiographical but it's very easy to see um why people wanted this book to come back into print um Mm -hmm. because the prose is so gorgeous and and because so much of what she does prefigures the sort of the internet soup that we uh, so many of us steep in today um yeah and a lot of what she does I, i can imagine readers in 1976 just wondering what on earth she was doing you know, and huh. and now reading this book now, it's not it's not shocking because so much of what she does has been adopted by a lot of authors who we revere now. So like, do you mean mm-hmm. in terms of structure and style or in terms of content? Structure and style. I okay. would say I think that I think the content is very niche. Sure. Um, but the the style is widely popular now uh-huh. um like david foster wallace was a big fan for example yeah sure um yeah. and i i think that that makes a lot of sense it's a very it's very conversational like she's does it sound like she's talking to you sophie yeah. reading her book okay yes yes it does and 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 i mean to me that's it sounds like when i read it i thought like this is a tumblr i would absolutely subscribe to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as someone who runs a successful like 
right personalized newsletter right this yes i imagine speaks to you yes yeah i mean i i think it's hard for me to say how much this would appeal to to most readers i i don't imagine that most readers care as much about that kind of thing as i do <laughs> i think <laughs> like I, I think it would be great if they did but i don't i don't expect every person picking up a book to be like yes i would like to read this completely meandering voice driven <laughs> you know quasi novel um yeah and i guess like if we want to use this as a metric of how influential something has ultimately been like adler herself has quite a long wikipedia article mm-hmm. but neither of her novels have their own pages right and I, and I, but i so but if we're gonna I use like say, are like, you notable enough for wikipedia as a as a good like baseline then right i right. guess they aren't but i think like we could get into a whole conversation about the like the the politics of like what does it mean when a book is out of print? Sure, Do you yeah. Know I mean? Like right. there's there's huge issues of access that that mm-hmm. go into that, and I think a lot of what keeps authors in print is that they keep publishing. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So the fact that so much of her work was in magazines and then had to be anthologized, um, you know that takes time, and mm-hmm. it's not it's different from. Um, a house, a publishing house saying, you know, we want to publish, you know, a book of your essays like that. That's definitely, I think, something that's fallen out of fashion. Like there's certainly some people who are like superstars in that arena. But I think you kind of have to be functioning at the level of like Roxane Gay or Ta-Nehisi Coates. To yeah, be like you either you either like have to anymore. be. Yeah, you either have to be like actively continuously writing mm-hmm. or you have to get to a level of fame that most people never do or you have to like burn out while you're on top so right. like if for the people who stopped writing but were still in print you go to like salinger or whoever and then uh like the canticle for Leibowitz guy that's that's mm-hmm. one guy who like died and he left behind this one book and then this it was influential enough to be in print but yeah most people don't get there yeah and if you're not writing like speedboat 2 they're <laughs> not gonna Boogaloo. publish yeah another <laughs> edition of speedboat with from the author of speedboat two on it yes more of that really quirky highly idiosyncratic voice driven thing you like you know (laughs) i feel like that's hard to summarize into a catchy catchphrase like yeah Yeah, so i i I think i think what's in print that matters well and it's interesting didn't the new york critics association weren't they kind of influential in bringing this back or like getting yeah, I think in 2010 they started or the critics saying, circle you know, we or really, something we really need to we need to reprint these books guys yeah and and to your point earlier Sophie about like Foster Wallace being a fan of hers like there are the there are the authors that maybe in their time have mainstream success but then don't continue to have like a like what we're saying now a large publishing life afterwards but the generation of writers following it or the generation of critics following that person uh, have great reverence for it or found a lot of influence out of it. Uh, so then, yeah, they're going to go back and say, other people should read this because it, it's, it changed my life. It's right. I mean, like, that's why anybody still listens to the Velvet Underground, right? Yeah. And because, it, well, like, and 10, also... people, 10 people listened at the time and then they all became, like, really prominent 
musician. <laughs> well, and also those songs are really good. I mean, like, <laughs> well, I mean that that too. But sometimes, sometimes like, things okay, don't survive me, even if they I, are good. I'll tell you a true story. When I was a, <laughs> okay, hit me. I know that I know that we in our group text situation we really like you love it when Craig and I talk about the radio stations that we jointly uh-huh. listen to. Oh, definitely. As no, I I I hang on that. <laughs> I, I know. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some more of this thing that you like. Um, oh boy! Yeah, just strap in, be ready. So when <laughs> I was when I was oh, 13 or 14, um, and listening on my headphones to uh, WMMR 93.3 mm-hmm. on your FM dial here in the mm-hmm. Greater Philadelphia mm-hmm. area. Um, Is that they, the station where Rock lives? Is MMR the uh, station? Or where it used to live. MMR means more rock. Oh, there it is. Means more rock. That's I right. I think I think that where rock what? lives is ninety four point one WYSP. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Maybe, although that might be a sports talk radio station. It is now. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. All right. What? You're welcome, oh, everyone wow. okay. in America. <laughs> welcome, local Philadelphia radio enthusiasts. <laughs> I bet you didn't realize that that was a key part of your listening demo. Um. So I was a young teenage person listening on my headphones to my Walkman, and uh, they played this radio documentary of the Velvet Underground. And like my dad has a great LP collection, but I don't think he had any Velvet Underground. And I was like, what is this? This is incredible. Like it really, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was in the early 90s and it totally spoke to me. And yeah, I think I think but I I do think you're point is well taken like yeah i mean what, what i'm saying is like their their fame at the time right. was not nearly like it would not suggest a band that would still be like in like being talked about 50 years right and yet like a lot of the things that they did you can hear in oh yeah in a yeah, lot yeah. of rock music now um even if the people making that music aren't aware of the velvet under that's so, part like, of it yeah i yeah. know for yeah. a fact that there are people writing in the style of Renata Adler um, or with that sort of snarky contrarian viewpoint and don't realize <laughs> that she's like their prose great, great, great grandmother. Yeah. Cause you've yeah. got, you've got 20 years almost now removed from the, from the larger chunk of Foster right. Wallace pre infinite jest uh, right. and other authors coming out of that generation that are now influencing you know, even even our generation coming out of college, reading those authors and going, well, I'm going to go write some stuff. Um, I don't know what you're writing about. Probably on Tumblr, but. Right. Or Medium or something. <laughs> or um, or tinyletter.com. Yeah. Right. There you go. As as we like as we coast into the end here, Sylvie, you've mentioned the the just how striking the prose is a yeah. couple of times. Do you have any passages like picked out that you can read? I mean, if I you don't have them. I you never asked. Yeah. yeah okay. Hang on. It's gonna take me a minute. It's gonna take me That's a minute to, to make a selection. The, the magic of podcasting yeah. is that we can go back and edit. I know, stuff, it's amazing. So. Okay. All right. I could oh man, the pressure to choose like just the right one. It's very high. You can do a couple. I mean okay. it's, it's all good. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't want to like be reading for like twenty minutes. Yeah, sure. um, or if you read one and we think it sucks, we can just okay. tell you, hey, so well, that was terrible. I think that's that fair. Was awful. No, that's that's totally fair. I mean, I know you're trying your best, but I know, Jesus. but oh man, you try a little harder, lady that we don't know. All right, all right. So this is—I was wrong. It's not five paragraphs; it's one. Huh. The clerk of—it's a long paragraph. 
Okay. The clerk of the morgue of this paper is an irascible man. Reporters are always taking his files away, forgetting to sign for them, keeping them, losing them, throwing them away. Over the years, it has made the clerk ill. I signed for a file, took the folder to my desk, and then took it home. Everybody does it. It is against the rules. After four days, I brought the folder back. The clerk of the morgue was incensed. What, he demanded to know, if the man whose file it was had died in those four days? What, in the absence of the file, would the obituary have been constructed from? Had I considered that at all? Well, I said, since I had signed for the file, if the man whose file it was had died, somebody could have called me up. I would have brought the folder back. True, the clerk said, but there were questions of another sort. What if in those four days a new fact about the man had come to light, a fact that quite ought, ought quite surely to be added to the file? What in the absence of the file was there to add the fact to? What rubric, category, or place was there to put the new fact in? Had I considered that at all? Had I given it one moment's thought? I said I had not. The clerk, becoming pale with rage, said he might have to raise the matter with management. People seem to be unhappy in so many different ways. I've always liked the wrathful keepers of the files. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, like, she's kind of putting him on blast, but also uh-huh. giving him some credit. That's yeah, good. also being well, like, oh, like... bro, I really like you, even though you are a jerk and dumb. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, missing the point of keeping files. Like, <laughs> the point is not to just bit. hold on to them and not let anyone have It's not have just them. to have them. Yeah. <laughs> There's Okay, so here's one more that I, um, that I really liked. Um, this is one section. It is set off from the rest of the text by spaces. Um, so it's not in relation to anything else in particular, but okay. it is definitely of a piece with the rest of the story. There are actually a lot of um, anecdotes where people are trying to get to islands. Islands are definitely a leitmotif in this story. Um, sure, sure. And transportation is as well. And there's a lot of flights on rickety aircraft. So <laughs> here's here's one for all those people, <laughs> so for all the fans of... Stories about flights on rickety aircraft. Puddle jumpers. Yeah. Yes. Gotta love those puddle jumpers. Um, The weather last Friday was terrible. The flight to Martha's Vineyard was, quote, decisional. What does decisional mean? A small boy asked. It means we might have to land in Hyannis, his mother said. It is hard to understand how anyone learns anything. (laughs) That is what this whole book is like. (laughs) She's just slapping people left and right. Oh, wait, here's one. This one is this one is for especially for Margaret uh, and all of the other dog (laughs) fans out there. There's a lot of there's a lot of anecdotes about misbehaving dogs. Okay, here's a great one. The St. Bernard at the pound on 92nd Street was named Bonnie and would have cost five dollars. The attendant held her tightly on a leash of rope. Hello, Bonnie, I said. Bonnie growled. I wouldn't talk to her if I was you, the attendant said. I leaned forward to pat her ear. Bonnie snarled. I wouldn't touch her if I was you, the attendant said. I held out my hand under Bonnie's jowls. She strained against the leash, choked, and coughed. Now cut that out, Bonnie, the attendant said. Could I just take her for a walk around the block, I said, before I decide. Are you out of your mind, the attendant said. Aldo patted Bonnie, and we left. That's it! So, so like, a little little conversational cul-de-sac yep. there's a whole bunch of them and like uh, and you get to the end of it and you just like turn around and drive back out you're like well that happened yeah it's like it's like going to the grocery store and the store is closed it closed 10 minutes early today see you later go home 
That's what. That's... Yeah, there were a whole po- bunch of points in this book where she, had she written it in 2016, would have written in all caps, "Welp." Like, <laughs> like so that happened. <laughs> there are a bunch of points here where she might easily have included hashtag Never Forget. Um, there's a lot of that. And yeah, so there's a lot of like post-colonial stuff going on there. Okay. Um, she, in the course of her work as a journalist, which she says she's not good, but she keeps getting these interesting international assignments. So maybe she just wasn't good at interviewing actors. I'm not sure. But she, I mean, I hate to break it to you guys, but if you ask any given reporter what they think of themselves, mm-hmm. you're not going to get like a great answer. <laughs> So maybe she's not a super reliable narrator. In fact, I'm I mean, we sure just she's we not. all have very low opinions of ourselves. Yeah. So don't even yeah. yeah don't as worry we about as it. we close out, Sophia just kind of wanted to ask: Are we yeah. supposed to uh, jive with Jen? Are we supposed to see ourselves in Jen and come back a little wanting? Is it a be like Jen's book? Uh, Definitely not a be like Jen book. Okay. Um, at no point does Jen encourage the reader to be like her or to confide in her she's i think weirdly impersonal about even the very personal things that she confides in the reader sure um like at one point she mentions something about having jim's baby but she doesn't have the baby in the course of the book so I don't know uh, if she's pregnant at the end of the book or if she had an abortion or if she was just wrong about being pregnant. So but it's like, not it's just kind of goes away. Yeah, mm. like yeah, it's not you are not invited into her feelings. Okay. She is definitely confiding in the reader, mm-hmm. but she's not inviting you into her confidence. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Sure. It's not it's It does, not and I personal. feel like that's also that's also kind of a hallmark of internet writing sometimes is to to get personal but like to not to like deflect and and not be yes. totally genuine to about it to be very like careful about yeah to be very careful yeah. about the person that you are presenting yes i mean this right, this is definitely yeah. a book where she's constructing a persona and she's very aware that that's what she's doing cool right. so it's i really I really enjoyed it. Like I relished her voice and I was, I was just thinking as I was looking for some passages to share with you, the voice that it most strongly reminded me of is um, the protagonist in the children's picture book, Eloise. I don't know that book. Have you read that one? No. Mm -mm. No. Well, maybe for children's book week, I will encourage you to visit it. It is a, picture book that was published in the 1950s um it is reputed to be based loosely on the experiences of a very young liza minnelli huh uh it's about a little girl named eloise who lives in the plaza hotel in manhattan with her nanny and who's very indulgent and she gets up to all sorts of hijinks in in the um in the hotel um (laughs) and it's told in this like really stream of consciousness totally lacking in punctuation, episodic way. Um, She definitely plunks you right into the narrative and expects you to come right along with her. And uh, she's, she's very wealthy, but she's also very ignored. Hmm. She's able to do all the, 
you know, get up to all the wacky hijinks and adventures that she gets up to because she's fundamentally deeply neglected. Um, so it's a very funny book, but it's also there's this real undercurrent of sadness that you don't really perceive as a child. Like that's something that I bring to the narrative as an, as an adult, adult reader. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Um, and there have there's there were several sequels, including um, I think Eloise at Christmas, Eloise in Paris, Eloise in Moscow, Ooh. now out of print, sadly. Um, and she's she's very funny, and she has this really really strong voice. There's no particular plot. It's just a bunch of humorous episodes that happen in a rarefied atmosphere in New York. And um, it was very easy to imagine Jen being a grown-up Eloise. Neat. Okay. Yeah. So that's definitely one to check out. It's that the first Eloise is still in print. Nice. um, And is widely available at libraries and booksellers everywhere. Cool. Well, if anyone of our listeners has read those books and would like to suggest some other Eloise books that we should check out, they should uh, write to us at overduepod at gmail.com. That is our email, our an electronic mail address. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do use social media, as we've kind of been alluding to over the course of the show. It's twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod. Uh, I want to thank a bunch of people who reached out to us on those services this week, including Sean, Bethany, Catherine, who's been going through our back catalog, which is always fun to watch unfold. Uh, Sarah, Teresa, Karen, Pale Pomegranate, Bunbury, uh, Kara, who has my back for pandas. Thank you, Kara. Uh, Tony, Kate, Taylor, Mm. Rebecca, Rachel, Alex, Robert, and last week's author, Laleen Paul, who went and listened to the episode, which is super cool. So thanks uh, to her for checking out the show. Uh, Andrew, where can people go if they want to find out more? Uh, They can go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our electronic website. Um, up there they can find you started it up there we can find rss and stitcher and itunes links those you those things you can use to subscribe to the show it's great if you subscribe on itunes do rate and review us if you have something to say we appreciate all the feedback and it just it helps us rise in the rankings helps us feel good um and then up there on the website we also have links to headgum which is our podcast network and to our patreon page and uh, if you listen to us and, and you think to yourself, boy, those those kids sound like they could use some money, you can go to <laughs> patreon.com slash pod and make that happen for us. I can hear it in their voices. They could use some yes. money. Yeah. It's, it's the please, sir, may I have some more tone. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Andrew, you also, as we said earlier, co-host Appointment Television, which is a podcast with aforementioned Margaret H. Willison and Catherine Van Arendong. People should go check it out. Uh, AT, ATV podcast at tw- is your com. Twitter or whatever. Yeah, you know well, that twitter.com slash ATV podcast. It's all basically. You know, the same. it's like a TV podcast, right? Is that on purpose? Yeah, I know. Um, it can be. All right, cool. And then, Sophie, if people want to know more about you, where what where should they hit you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sophie Biblio. And if they are interested in Two Bossy Dames, we're at Two Bossy Dames. That's all spelled out, no numbers. And then if they would like to subscribe to the newsletter, which we would welcome you into Dames Nation with open mm-hmm. arms, uh, <laughs> they can find that at tinyletter.com slash two bossy dames. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on, Sophie. Yeah, it was fun. Oh, thanks for having me. It was super fun. All right, everybody. We will be back sometime next week. I don't know. This is a bonus episode, maybe. So I don't know when we're going to put it up. But 
whenever that is, try to be happy till then. <laughs> Stuck the landing. That was a HeadGum Podcast.